Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One, two. Here's two. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series, Volume 1, Should Have Been There, Volume 2, Shivering Inside, and Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. Tower clock strikes in the cold night air And it's onward to Liddy Pool for me The year was 1965, and James Brown had invented funk. By stripping everything out except the rhythm and building the foundation for all dance music to follow. In country, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Buck Owens, and Merle Haggard rebelled. Rebelled against the Nashville sound. Even Frank Sinatra managed one of his most remarkable comebacks in a career full of them, with the Grammy award-winning albums, September of My Years, and A Man and His Music. (laughs) You couldn't turn on the radio without hearing a new classic, Like a Rolling Stone, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, My Generation, People Get Ready, Nowhere Man, Mr. Tambourine Man, The Sound of Silence, Eve of Destruction, Freedom Highway, It's My Life, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Respect, I Fought the Law, My Girl, Go Where You Want to Go, One Love, A Change is Going to Come. Do you believe in magic? We're going to make it. You've lost that love and feeling in the midnight hour, California dreaming, heart full of soul. I can't help myself. California girls, stop in the name of love. Norwegian would, I'll be doggone. I got you, babe. Nowhere to run. Help. Ticket to ride. And oh yes, yesterday. The Beatles loomed over 1965 like no other artist has ever done since. From January 65 through January 66, they enjoyed six number one U.S. singles in a row, a feat unbroken until the Bee Gees tied it in 1979. 1965, 
a year in which we saw classic television programs like Bonanza and the Andy Griffith Show, the Beverly Hillbillies, Gomer Pyle, Lassie, Big Valley, the Virginian Wild Wild West, the Lucy Show, the Donna Reed Show, and A Man from Uncle. You remember that one? In which big screen films were never to be forgotten. Dr. Zhivago, The Sound of Music, the new James Bond flick Thunderball, and a little film that you might remember called Help. The economy was booming, the fight for civil rights was being waged, the pill was being prescribed for married women, and over in a country called Vietnam, a war was raging with American soldiers fighting for their lives. 1965, a landmark year, a year magically brought to you by those powerful words of Andrew Grant Jackson in his new book, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music, 1965, and it was quite a year. This is a great book. If you live through the 60s, it's going to bring back all of the wonderful memories that you hold so close. If you didn't live in the 60s, you're going to be introduced to an epic that you never dreamed affected your life as much as it does each day. So let's welcome to the show the author of this fantastic book, the one and only Andrew Grant Jackson. Let's see if he's on the line. Andrew, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Jude. Thanks for having me love back. Your book. Well, I love having you here in this book. I mean, I love still the greatest about the Beatles, the Beatles solo careers, because both you and I love the Beatles, but man, did this book bring back some good memories for me. Oh, great. Great. I'm glad. Thank you. It, it's really wonderful. Now, one of the things that just grabbed my attention right at the very beginning and held it was the timeline that you give to your readers. You walk them month by month through 1965, and you give them tons of things that happened each month. But I know we don't have time to go over all of those. Could you kind of walk us through that same pathway and give us like, you know, three or four things that happened each month so we can kind of get a picture of what 1965 looked like? Sure. Um, Let's see. So starting with January, uh, on the 4th, uh, President Lyndon Johnson announced his plans for the Great Society with programs like Medicare and Medicaid. And um, then he was inaugurated on the 20th, and it was the biggest inauguration crowd until uh, Obama's, you know, in 2009. And uh, also that month, in uh, just uh, two, three-and-a-half-hour sessions, Bob Dylan recorded Bringing It All Back Home, his first album that combined his folk lyrics with rock and roll. And uh, a couple days later, on the 20th, the Birds recorded their version of his song from that album, Mr. Tambourine Man, where they kind of matched the Beatles' jangle guitar with uh, Dylan's lyrics. And uh, so then in February, um, at some time in the month, now it's 50 years later, nobody's exactly sure of the date, but John Coltrane released uh, Love Supreme, which yeah. uh, combined, uh, you know, bop and free jazz and his spirituality. And um, and then in, uh, on the 18th that month was when um, when the, uh, the civil rights activists in uh, Selma, uh, Alabama, were demonstrating uh, Jimmy Lee Jackson was fatally shot in the stomach by a state trooper, and uh, so that um, uh, inaugurated you know, that started all the protests down there. Um, yeah. That uh, that resulted in um, you know the big march the following month. Um, right. The three or four day mar- march, 
or four days, I think. Um, and then on the 21st of February, uh, Malcolm X was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in March, moving into March, uh, on the 8th, the first combat troops arrived in Vietnam, 3,500 Marines in China Beach. Um, there were already 23,000 advisors there, American advisors, but... Um, and, uh, yeah, the they've 20- been there since Eisenhower, right? They've been there since the end of the Eisenhower administration. So, But this is the first time we're seeing troops really go over, right? Yeah, they um, also that month uh, Johnson uh, started the uh, Rolling Thunder bombing campaign. Uh, and, and so these, these, uh, these troops that landed were originally protecting, like, the air bases and stuff over there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, then, so then uh, later that month on the 24th, they had the first teach-in uh, at the University of Michigan, uh, which was inspired by the sit-ins of the civil rights movement. But in, the, in this case, it was uh, protesting the war. And, and uh, then on um, the 25th of that month, month of March was when uh, Martin Luther King gave his uh, how long, not long speech at the uh, Alabama State Capitol after uh, the marchers had marched for f- uh, five, four days from uh, Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. Wow. And and that was what ultimately uh, resulted in the Voting Rights Act later that that uh, that year, where um, before that, uh, you know, they would use all these tactics to dissuade black voters from voting. But one of the things the Voting Rights Act did was send monitors down, federal monitors down to the South to make sure they weren't doing anything fishy like that anymore and then really mm-hmm. change the voting demographics of that area. Yeah. Right. And uh, in April, um, Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds was released, um, and the birds were really taken off in Los Angeles on the Sunset Strip and at the club where they played, Ciro's Nightclub. That was, a lot of people say that was where the first hippie dance style started happening because uh, oh there was a gosh. dance troupe. Yeah, they they followed them around. And they did all that kind of free form dancing with instead of the twist, you know, it's like a new form of uh, moving around, listening to music. I and, love uh, it, and that brought us from straight from that club to the hippies, and then straight to our friends Michelle and Joni Lapidus, who carry it on today. Yeah, at the fest for Beatles. On the stage at the Beatles fest, I love it. That's when it all started, right there. Very cool. It, uh, also that year, um, uh, the Pawnbroker was released, and that was the first uh, movie uh, produced uh, approved by the U.S. Production Code, where they showed uh, uh, frontal female nudity for the first time. It, it finally, uh, you know, yeah. it had been censored up till then, but that was the first time. And uh, in May, um, the British invasion of the U.S. charts. It, it was the high point where they had. Um, Eight of the top ten singles in the U.S. charts were English songs, and uh, one of them was Australian. So that was at the most that um, the British artists kind of took over the the charts in, in those. You know, '64 and '65 was the first wave of the British invasion. Yeah. And, um, uh, then there was a, a, a huge, another huge teaching in Berkeley, California. That one had like ten to thirty thousand people. Jerry Rubin wow. was one of the organizers of that. And um, in uh, Jamaica, Bob Marley and the Wailers were releasing songs like "Rude Boy" and also a, a ton of Beatles covers. Funnily enough, they were—they'd even cover—they covered like Ringo's theme, like the instrumental from uh, 
a hard day's night. They were just <laughs> doing all this crazy stuff over there. That's right. Uh, June, um, on the 7th, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court decided in Griswold versus Connecticut that states could not outlaw the birth control pill because uh, some, some of the states like Connecticut had been outlawing contraception, but but uh, the Supreme Court said no, and that kind of uh, paved the way for Johnson using the pill and uh, programs with the Great Society, like in his war on poverty. And it really, uh, after that, the number of women on the pill escalated a lot. Yeah. And uh, James Brown released Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, uh, which um, was the tune, as you said in your introduction, where he started he 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 began uh, creating the new funk genre by instead of concentrating on melody making all the instruments serve as a form of drumming and uh yeah uh i can't get no satisfaction also came out then maybe the anthem of the decade i don't know yeah. you know we're we're beatles people but that one's pretty uh pretty it's close too it's a, was it played every 6 seconds on the radio somewhere in that the statistic every 6 seconds Oh wow! Yeah, I must probably, yeah, even that year or throughout the decade. No, it still is today. Somewhere in the world today, that song is played still every six seconds on the radio. Wow! Wow! Yeah, yeah. pretty pretty Crazy. impactful. And uh, let's see, in July, um, well, that year or that month, Dylan released "Like a Rolling Stone," and then he got booed. On the 25th at the Newport Folk, Newport Folk Festival for uh, going electric, all the folkies or a lot, some of them, a vocal portion of them thought he was selling out, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, on the 28th, Johnson doubled the draft. The men drafted to Vietnam per month went up from 17,000 to 35,000. And then wow. two days later. As part of the Great Society and War on Poverty, he signed into law Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, public television, public radio, food stamps, uh, Housing and Urban Development Department, National Endowment of the Arts. So he was... uh, That's huge, isn't it? I mean, that's huge. Yeah, he was in all directions. He was busy, busy that month for sure. And then yeah, I was in August, being a little the, kid. I, you know, I don't remember any of this stuff because, you know, I was little. But that that's that's earth changing. I mean, that changed the face of the United States, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I have an I have an aunt who needs you know assistance. She's uh, you know, uh, and without the Medicare helping, you know, Medicaid, you know, she'd be uh, right. It'd be a lot harder for everybody. So. Yeah, it really is, and that brings us what to August. We're up to August. Yeah, and on the sixth, he then he signed Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, you know, which we spoke a little bit about. With Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. was there at the Capitol, and um, uh, the day before that, actually, on the fifth, CBS News with uh, Walter Cronkite, um, uh, it showed American soldiers uh, burning Vietnamese villagers' huts, and uh, Johnson was furious and called the network president in the middle of the night, and. Uh, that might have been the first time that the networks kind of stopped going with the program, I guess, and started showing right. some of the things in the wars in wars that they did that the government didn't want them to show, you know. Right. And uh, on the ninth, um, 
MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, started a new uh, CTSS file system with the earliest form of email. It was called oh! mail. So that was, that was uh, who knew what that was going to blossom into, you know, 50 years later. No and, joke. Uh, on the 15th, the uh, Beatles played Shea Stadium, the first uh, concert in a sports stadium. Yeah. And uh, that that eventually changed, you know, turned into stadium rock and arena rock and all that stuff. And uh, so then in September, uh, Mary Quant, am I moving fast enough for you or should I? Oh, yeah, this is great. I love it. I love it. I can't. It's mind boggling that this all happened in one year. Yeah, yeah, it was a. it was definitely fun to write about because there's so much, every month, so much stuff going on. It is. It is. So I guess Mary Quant's bringing in Swingin' London with her fashion, huh? Yeah, she went on a tour, an eight-city tour called Youthquake, the Youthquake tour of U.S. department stores. And uh, the models were, you know, modeling mini skirts, and they had this band called the Skunks with these guys with white stripes and their black hair, and they, they played <laughs> Youthquake in the song Youthquake. <laughs> Which I think you can hear on YouTube. I think I heard it on YouTube when I was writing it. So um, cool. And, uh, you know, a month later, um, Gene Shrimpton really caught a lot of flack, the supermodel Gene Shrimpton, because she went to the Victoria Derby in Australia wearing what was, in effect, a miniskirt. Although, by today's standards, it's still pretty close to her knee, you know. But uh, yeah, everybody yeah. in Australia was outraged. Or not everybody, but a lot of people were. Yeah, A lot of women were criticizing her and uh uh uh, eve of destruction hit number one that month and um barry mcguire's song and that you never know but uh you know one of the first lines in that song is you're old enough to kill but not for voting that that might have been an instrumental part of finally um a couple years later they were able to lower the voting age from 21 to 18 and uh yeah Maybe that song playing every day kind of helped change people's minds a little bit about that issue. And one of the things you point out in your book is that starting with Eve of Destruction and now going from we're in September going to the end of the year, that things begin to get dark. That you, you, all of your happy beboppy songs have been the first of the year, and now end of '65, you're even the Beatles are going to release you know, darker songs like Yesterday, which is, you know, regretful. So the music kind of changes at this point, doesn't it? Yeah, perfect example. That is another song that um, uh, Sound of Silence kind of, uh, it it had been an acoustic track a year ago that had, on an album by Simon Garfunkel that had kind of flopped. But then um, after uh, the birds... Uh, had a big hit with Mr. Tambourine Man, Dylan's producer. After Dylan finished the session, he had the session musicians record electric backing over the acoustic sound of silence and re-released it. And then it became, at the beginning of 66, it was number one. It kind of went up the charts gradually. But that's that's yeah. a really dark song. And that kind of, uh, yeah. I think it was probably the war. You know, like I guess, uh, you know, 35,000 kids getting drafted every month kind of changed like you say, sure. made it a lot darker mood going on. Sure. And uh, so moving into October, um, uh, or actually, you know, it's just a inter- kind of interesting dark, too, in a different way. September 15th was um, 
when Bill Cosby became the first black black man to star in a TV drama with I Spy. Oh, that's right. Uh, four Southern stations had decided not to air the show, but eventually, you know, it, regardless, it became a huge hit. And, yeah. But um, so in October, um, they had it was another huge round of protests. Um, October 15th, 16th, the Vietnam Day Committee in Berkeley. Well, it was around the world, actually. They had protests in 40 cities across the U.S. and Europe. And uh, in November, um, on the 19th of November, these boots are made for walking. Nancy Sinatra recorded it. It didn't get released till the next year. But uh, yeah. I, I'd like to stick that in there as kind of um, kind of a... It was kind of before feminism and all that stuff, but the the sexual revolution was kind of changing, you know, men and women's sure. relations, and that that kind of captured that a little bit. Definitely. And, um, on the nineteenth, in another um, Berkeley uh, protest, Allen Ginsberg, the the Hell's Angels down there had broken up one, or not a broken it up, but attacked a group of protesters earlier, and so. Um, Allen Ginsberg had come up with a uh, some ideas of how to uh, disarm or to protest in a way that might, you know, fend off attacks from either the Hell's Angels or the cops or whoever. And um, he didn't use the word flower power exactly, but he wrote this essay called Demonstration or Spectacle as, a, as Example as Communication or How to Make a March Spectacle, where he talked about using flowers and, and playing I Want to Hold Your Hand and doing all this stuff to, uh, you know, uh, kind of changed the the dynamics going on in these uh, these protests, and that kind of led the way to flower power. A couple of years later, they started calling it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, November thirtieth, Ralph Nader published um, "Unsafe at Any Speed." Oh uh, my gosh! I, I think I think he's talking about like uh, the Corvair was. They had the, it had the engine in the back, so people were like crashing on the road. It was spinning out and and. Uh, he kind of, you know, the the big auto industries in Detroit, you know, he kind of forced them to, you know, start addressing safety more. And, I didn't um, realize it was that early. I mean, that 65 is very early because he's running on that platform, you know, 20 years later. So that's that's incredible that that's when he released Unsafe at Any Speed. Yeah, and then they tried to, um, they 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 tried to smear him a bit after that, you know, they, with uh, the with uh, infidelity, he's saying he had infidelities or, you know, trying to impugn his character a lot, did all these things to try to hush him up. Yeah. But uh, And then November 27th, um, Ken Kesey held the first public acid test in Santa Cruz where um, they'd spiked the punch bowls with LSD and um, the next month the Grateful Dead started playing as the house band and those things. And, uh, yeah. As they started expanding into um, bigger venues, then they started adding light shows, psychedelic light shows, and that became kind of the forerunner of raves and just sure. Pink Floyd crazy light shows and all that stuff. You know. Yeah. And uh, so in December, let's see, um, last couple of interesting... Oh, and uh, on the 7th, the Massachusetts Supreme Court upheld high school officials' right to suspend students with long hair. At that, <laughs> at, at that point, they still said, hey, you, you, these kids can disrupt class, and that would... So 
administrators can make them leave school if they have long hair, you know. Too funny. And uh, the 16th was when Mary Beth Tinker and Christopher Eckhart wore black armbands to school to protest the war, and they got sent home, and that case went to the Supreme Court eventually in 68, and then they finally won the right to, you know, express, right to free expression. Yeah, um, yeah. And the last two things were uh, on the 20th, um, the stu- in, in Alabama, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Civil Rights Organization, announced uh, the formation of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, and, and its symbol was the Black Panther. Right. That over in Oakland the following year, you know, Huey, 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 Lu- <laughs> I was about to say Huey Lewis. That wouldn't be yeah, it. no, no, no. Huey, no. <laughs> Huey Newton, uh, you know, uh, Bobby uh, Seal, they, uh, they started their own kind of version of the Black Panthers. So there are a couple yep. of different versions going around at the same time for a little bit. Uh, and then uh, on the at the end of the very end of the year, uh, Walter Cronkite's TV show had uh, Andy Warhol got the Velvet Underground on um, uh, Walter Cronkite, and they were uh, performing some songs. It was a it was a segment about art films, but they the Velvet Underground's shown playing their music on there. So oh, that's, that's crazy. What a year, what a year, and I want to clarify before we move on, we've talked a lot about the protests against the Vietnam War and the different things, the armbands and the freedom of expression, and the president calling the press in the middle of the night to complain about what was shown on TV, but Andrew and I want to express our appreciation to the Vietnam vets who went over and put their lives at risk for all of us. Many of these young men wanted to go no more than the protesters who were protesting, but they did what they had to do. And it was a terrible, terrible situation, scary in a thousand different ways. And for all of those who served, we appreciate you. And I know that when a lot of these guys came back, they were spat upon and treated badly, and they didn't receive a hero's welcome. So for all of them, our thanks for what you did now um yeah, yeah Andrew, you know a lot of them if they they from their perspective it was like they thought they had to stop like in in world war Two, nobody stopped hitler when he was grabbing up all the countries so they were from their perspective they were thinking you know the communist menace was taking up all grabbing more countries and we had to stop them right so it was right right different and perspective. you certainly yeah you do what you're told to do you know i mean i had many of my friends' brothers had to go and came back very changed. So, you know, it was a very tough situation. I really love the chapter in which you talk about the factors, the catalysts that led to this gigantic change in culture. One of the things that you say, it's on page 75 and 76 of the book, is that many of the leading British bands, this invasion that you talked about a minute ago, were fronted by art school rockers. And you give examples. John Lennon, Keith Richards, Pete Townsend, Ray Davies, Eric Clapp, and as, you know, kind of the beatniks, the existentialists, free thinkers, activists, they were bringing on this age of enlightenment. What other factors do you think made all of these things happen in one year? I think um, the the big five things were um, the, with the civil rights movement, 
uh, the Vietnam War starting, uh, the pill kind of uh, speeding up the sexual revolution really started getting going. Uh, and then, of course, I have a five-year-old daughter, so I'm glad she's not listening. But, you know, marijuana and LSD really started uh, seeping in. I mean, Dylan uh, gave the Beatles their first really good time on it in August 64, and then Brian Wilson started smoking in December 64, the Stones in the beginning of 65. And then they, the Beatles were dosed without their permission in March of 65 with LSD. And then, yeah. you know, Brian Wilson was, did it the first time his first month. And then the, all those guys, the birds. So psychedelics were definitely, you know, a massive, you know, uh, that really impacted the music. And then I, th- I think all those, those, and then the musicians' long hair too. That that kind of made a lot of uh, people start rebelling, or you know, the kids. So I think all those, all those five elements sort of made it made a lot of people start demanding or questioning or demanding more personal freedom. And then the, so the artists started wanting to express that in their lyrics, and then also musically by experimenting with new sounds and things like that. And it just became a giant snowball, like all these so- social forces you know, colliding at the same time. Yeah, our heroes of the late 1950s had been very in the box. If you're thinking about Bobby Vinton and Bobby V and Paul Anka, they're very in the box. And now these heroes are way out of the box. They are these art school rockers. And the people who are leading, especially the Beatles, are very, very outside the lines, aren't they? Yeah, you know, I recently... uh, I read uh, a friend of ours, uh, Candy Leonard's book, Beatleness, and uh, right. a good, a really good point she came back to in that book was that they were providing the Beatles and also the other British invasion guys kind of like a new model of masculinity for both the women and the men. You know, kind of an alternative to the crew cut, you know, strong silent types, you know, who, uh, you know, it, it, who served in the war and everything who were really tough maybe didn't express vulnerability as much and you know weren't quite as uh open to some feminine influences you know as these uh british guys were absolutely absolutely the beatles revere women sing about them in their songs or inspired by the shirelles and the ronettes and you know, the Supremes, and John Lennon tells the Supremes how inspired he is by them. So uh, it's a different age. The woman is coming into her own in music, too. Well, you really pointed out the huge variety in music that year. We talked about James Brown. You you really had a great chapter about how Nashville had dominated country music, but now they're starting to rebel against Nashville's heavy thumb and become a little bit more pop and rock and roll. The folk sound, you talked about that, the music of the Brill Building Group, these writers who so successfully dominated music for years and years and years. So much variety. What is making people so diverse and what about George Harrison and what he discovered that year? He becomes very diverse. Tell us that story. Hey, he, they were um, the uh, Beatles were shooting Help, and uh, it's, they, the the plot of that movie is I'm sure everybody, all your listeners know, is that um, this kind of a Hindu sect uh, is trying to 
catch Ringo and kill him because he's got this sacrificial ring on his hand, which is definitely kind of politically incorrect these days, you know. But um, especially because they had like a, a white guy playing the Indian guy, <laughs> something in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they, you know, in the the soundtrack they had a lot of. Uh, Indian instrumentation. So um, uh, one day when they were shooting the scene in a restaurant, an Indian restaurant, uh, George became fascinated with uh, the sitar because um, his mom, Louise, said she always used to play uh, when he was, even before he was born, but presumably when he was young, they would play Indian music on the BBC or something. And uh, so his mom was a, a fan of it. and uh, But so he became... He started becoming interested in the sitar and the Yardbirds at the same time tried to use it in uh, Heart Full of Soul, uh, but they couldn't find a musician who could play in the, the Western time, you know, in the same keep the same beat that the Westerners did. So they, Jeff Beck actually used a, a fuzz box to try to imitate the wow. sitar. That's but, uh, crazy. And the, it was, that was kind of the birth of, one of the things that birthed psychedelia, trying to imitate uh, Indian music with, you know, Western technology. But uh, and then the Kinks were doing "See My Friend," where he, uh, Ray Davies was uh, "See My Friend," where he was imitating the sound he heard when he heard these Indian fishermen singing while he was on tour in the East. And so, uh, and then when the Beatles kind of hung out with the Birds and in L.A., uh, David Crosby had uh, raved about Ravi, Ravi Shankar. To George, yeah. so he had, he went and bought an album, a couple albums of his, and got a sitar. And so when they were going to record Norwegian Wood, John wanted to add a uh, a new flavor to it. So he asked uh, George if he could play the sitar on. George was, ah, I haven't been playing it too long. I'm not sure how great it'll be, but he, he gave it a go, and you know, started a whole. And the new rest is history. Phase. Yeah. Yeah, I really did. Well, we've got we have a special guest coming on in about 10 minutes and I really want to do this segment that we've got when you were on the show the last time with your first book Still the Greatest The Essential Songs of the Beatles Solo Careers, you and I did this rapid fire 60 second assessment of some of the Beatles solo songs. It was really fun. And I had a hard time selecting the most impactful or important or outstanding songs of 1965 to ask you to give us some back history. There were so, so many, but some of them stood out. And one that I would really love to hear a quick 60-second snippet about, or maybe 90 seconds, is Mr. Tambourine Man. You already mentioned the birds, but, man, it comes up in the book many times. Tell us about Mr. Tambourine Man. Well, Dylan Dylan, uh, wrote it in 64. Um, in April '64, but he didn't. When he tried to record it in a, his '64 album session, it didn't come out how he liked it. So he um, re-recorded it in uh, bringing it all back home. And by that time, an acetate of his older version had made it to the Birds manager. And so um, they also did uh, <clears throat> their own version of it uh, with, you know, the the put it to a, a rock beat with the Django guitar. And um, yeah. So that that kind of provided the whole template of the folk rock boom that really exploded that the second half of that year with you know Mamas and the Papas, Loving Spoonful, Sonny and Cher, Barry McGuire. It was so that was a, a worldwide hit and um, not only put kind of helped put Dylan on the map you know as a songwriter and then the Birds and just uh, so that was a 
Probably, yeah. That might have been one of the most influential songs of the year, definitely. It was, I definitely. I mean, it keeps coming up in the book. I, I read about it, and then 20 pages later, there it is again. They People keep re-recording it. What about Nowhere to Run? That was, um, you know, Martha and the Vandellas, and it was written, you know, uh, by the uh, Holland Dozier, Holland songwriting production team at Motown. And uh, the funny thing with that is, um, as a... Uh, Isaac Hayes, who was at Stax, was quoted in the book as saying um, it was a, a joke with uh, the black musicians that whites could not clap on the backbeat. So they, so Motown <laughs> would <laughs> deliberately try to hit people over the head with it. And so on that song, they uh, they had uh, snow chains, you know, like the the kind you put on your tires um, in the winter. And so they would, they beat those along with the beat and the tam- and the drums and the tambourine and. And that song, even though it was about a a woman who, you know, can't forget this lover who's bad for her, it, it became like a, you know, Vietnam veterans would you, you would yeah. embrace that song and the rioters, you know, or the, you know, people in the riots in the later part of the year and then the dec- the decade also. Right, you definitely know, their anthem. And then one that touches your heart has to a change is going to come. Oh yeah, that was. That's that's a really uh, a lot of heavy stuff in that song. Sam Cooke had uh, actually he had been inspired by "Blowing in the Wind," and also he by Dylan, of course. And then um, he had he had been with some civil rights organizers who had been trying to integrate restaurants in North Carolina, like Howard Johnson's at the time. And um, so he was writing about that, but then. Right around that time, unfortunately, his 18-month-year-old son uh, drowned in the family swimming pool, uh, and uh, you know that 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 really you know devastated him. And then his party, his touring party, was arrested when they were trying to check into a whites-only motel. And uh, mm-hmm. so by the time he sang it, you know, it really had a total devastation in the lyrics, but it still he's still carrying on at the end, you know, and uh, then yeah. of course he, yeah. he died, you know, he, he was killed on December 11th. And so it had been an album track, but the uh, label released it and eventually it made number 31 on the pop charts in February of 65. I was surprised it didn't go higher than that. It's such a beautiful song. What about you've lost that love and feeling? Oh yeah, that was um, Phil Spector. Uh, he had been previously with a, uh, with the girl groups primarily but um after the british invasion uh his songs like the ronettes walking in the rain suddenly he wasn't uh cracking the top 20 so he switched to a, a male group you know the righteous brothers and um that's where he got the uh the brill he flew the um he was out in la i guess and uh so he got the uh, songwriting team man and wheel from uh, the brill building to fly out and they were inspired by the Four Tops, "Baby, I Need Your Lovin'," and um, so he he did, you know, obviously a monumental job producing it. But then it was uh, three minutes and forty-five seconds, and that was longer than uh, radio stations would play at that time. So he just <laughs> said, "Well, we'll just say it's three minutes and five seconds on the label." And, you know, <laughs> he just printed the label like a, you know, lied on the label, and by the time they figured it out, it was too late. It was a huge number one smash 
I love that. I love Chuck Gunderson's explanation that when the Righteous Brothers had to open for the Beatles on the North American tour, and of course nobody would listen to them sing, that finally they lost that love and feeling and quit the tour. So <laughs> yeah, I always think about that when I hear that song. And then for our boys, Help. Help was, I always thought it was really interesting that um, a year a year prior to that, um, the Beatles were shooting A Hard Day's Night, and John had written that song in one night. He went home, and he just wrote A Hard Day's Night one night. Yep. And then he did the same thing with Help. Oh, I'm just going to write Help in one night. And uh, he, uh, at the time, his friend journalist Maureen Cleave had, um, uh, you know, said, yeah, you never use words with more than one syllable in it. And uh, Lennon was feeling kind of uh, competitive with Bob Dylan at that time. So he, he added all these, you know, longer words like insecure, independent, self-assured, appreciating the lyrics. And uh, and then, um, yeah, it was sort of a precursor to his later, like, Plastic Ono Band kind of uh, raw emotional honesty, which is pretty, it was pretty surprising left turn in in retrospect you know you have like eight days a week one month and then suddenly he's singing help you know like which is pretty yeah emotionally raw song so it's really showed their depth you know, or, you know i think it's one of my favorites i'm going to be this saturday night in the middle of the night i think it's like 4 a.m on Rod quinn's overnight program in australia and this is one of the songs that we talk about for about 15 minutes it's such a it's an important it's a landmark song and we're going to talk about the dylan myth that that John never wrote biographical songs until Dylan came along. Now, one of the songs that you talk about quite a bit, because a lot of people did it, even the Beatles, is Memphis. But tell us about that from the Buck Owens perspective. Well, he um, he and the Beatles were both on Capitol, you know, the Capitol Records label. And uh, Owens would play Twist and Shout in his set. And um, he and his guitarist, Don Rich, they would... Uh, Sometimes, you know, it do Liverpool accents and stuff and uh, wear, wear Beatles wigs. And, um, you know, they, especially after um, the Beatles arrived in America, they you could hear on Beatles for sale, you know, a definite, I think you can, and even before, like without crying, said he can hear like a country influence, but I don't want to spoil the party, I'm a loser. They were definitely, you know, especially Ringo was, you know, always wanting Buck Owens records. So there was a, they were both listening to each other. But um, but Buck Owens would get criticized for saying, you know, saying he liked the Beatles uh, because the country fans would say, you, you know, you should be talking about country music. It was kind of like the folk, the same thing in the folk world with Dylan. You know, he, they they the sides thought they were selling out if you were you if you were diverse in your tastes. But um, he covered uh, Chuck Berry's uh, Memphis, Tennessee, on his album "I've Got a Tiger by the Tail," and then I. Uh, he got a lot of attacks, and uh, so he he put out an um, ad in the Music City News in Nashville, a Nashville paper, and he said, I shall sing no song that is not a country song. I shall make no record that is not a country record. And country music and country music fans made me what I am today, and I shall not forget it. But later he kind of said to an interviewer, you know, I see uh, Memphis as being rockabilly. I didn't say I was going to do rockabilly. I just said I ain't going to sing no song that ain't a country song. <laughs> but uh <laughs> but I mean uh if if those aren't if Memphis's lyrics aren't country lyrics if the melody if that ain't if that ain't a country melody, you know. 
Uh, and he said the only thing was a black man was singing it, a black man that I was a big fan of. Uh, sure. So. And then one that that we really cherish and was one of the best songs of the year, Ticket to Ride. Oh, yeah, that was, I always thought, um, I kind of think, I don't know, what do you think about this? You know the ending, the fade out of A Hard Day's Night? They have that. Yeah. To me, it always sounded like, they were like, wow, that was a great fade out. And we kind of like, we didn't take full advantage of that amazing sound. And so it almost sounds like (laughs) they took that and, and made that. The kind of beginning of Ticket to Ride, and not exactly. Yeah, but, like you could play them together, fade one out and fade one in. Yeah, that was just, uh, I mean, that that in the birds, that's jangle pop right there, you know, which, yeah. you know, has continued on with R.E.M. and all the groups later on, you know, in the 80s until today. But um, they, the, Paul Paul had the, uh, that's like a great example of, even though John wrote the lyrics, uh, Paul kind of had the idea for the drum beat, and then he showed it to Ringo, and then I guess Paul played the uh, electric guitar, the lead guitar on that one. And, uh, yeah. And, and that was like, I think that was the first, do you agree with this? It was like their first single. I mean, they had sad album songs before, but this was kind of the first time their single had been kind of a downbeat song. Like, I mean, yeah. it was one of my favorite songs, but it's kind of the first time he started, I'm going to be sad, you know, singing about being sad and stuff instead of happy. So that was right. kind of brave, right. you, you know. You've had it before on songs like I'll Cry Instead and If I Fell and things like that, but now now you have it in a single, too. They're being very, very honest. I know we're going to get our callers going to call in any minute, so let's skip to yesterday. Tell us about yesterday. Well, that was, um, you know, uh, Paul was living when he wasn't on tour in uh, Jane Asher's uh, family's house in London, and his mom uh well, she taught classical music. Uh, I think she was George Martin's oboe instructor, I think. And um, he, Paul had a uh, used a music room in there to write stuff. And then one morning he woke up with a dream of a melody. that. Uh, uh, so he ran to the piano and played it. And for a year he thought maybe he had subconsciously plagiarized it. So he would play it for for everybody. Say, hey, do you know this song? Do you recognize this song? And uh, But... Nobody did, but he couldn't come up with good lyrics for it. But uh, finally, um, after a year of tinkering with it, he, uh, you know, the words to yesterday came to him. And later on, he thought maybe it was subconsciously inspired by the loss of his mother to an extent. Yeah. But um, yeah. it, uh, it just, it was amazing. He recorded. I, I, in retrospect, he must have been bummed out, Paul, because I think his songs in the movie help were not his ultra classics. But then. After it was too late to add songs to the movie, but for the album, he recorded in one day. Yesterday, um, I've just seen a face and I'm down, like in one session, boom, boom, boom. And, uh, right, the Parlophone. The Parlophone. B- pardon me? The Parlophone LP, not the Capitol release. It's on that side, too, of the Parlophone release for our listeners who, you know, we take it for granted that they know what we're talking about. But, yeah, on the on side, two of the Parlophone release, they're, they're there. Well, Andrew, you know, we can't talk about 1965 without talking about the Beatles. And like we were just saying, it's their LP and their movie Help, and John writes his second book, A Spaniard in the Works, and, of course, the second North American tour, but... One can't look at 1965 without looking at the gigantic influence of Barry Gordy's Motown. The Beatles totally felt it. I mean, they imitated and borrowed from The Temptations, whom they loved, and Marvin Gaye, and The Shirelles, and The Supremes, and all of them. And in a very strange way, um, 
David Ruffin of The Temptations was sort of a John Lennon figure and vice versa. John was a David Ruffin figure. You point out in your book that, you know, they both have those thick black frame glasses that made them cutting edge cool. Ruffin's kind of the hothead. He's like John, the more egotistical one of the in the temptations. In fact at one point he wants it to be David Ruffin in the Temptations. And just so happened that when I was traveling to the New York Metro Fest for Beatles fans I happened to sit on the airplane between two of the nicest guys I ever met. One was a guy named Kenny Santana, who was the manager for the young man sitting on my left, who just happened to be David Ruffin's grandson, Marquise. And he is a talented singer in his own right. So I invited him to join us to talk about The Temptations and to talk about his career, too. Let's see if he's on the line. Marquise, are you there? Hello. Can you hear me? Hey, can you hear us? Yeah, I hear you. Great. How are you doing? I'm not too bad yourself. Well, good. I want to introduce you to Andrew Grant Jackson, who's just written this book on 1965. And we're dying to hear what memories, I know you were probably born, uh, you know, long after your grandfather was in The Temptations, but what family stories and memories do you have of him? Um, To be honest, it's all it, it's all from other people's mouths because he had passed away when I had turned one. So I don't really have yeah. too many memories, but from what I know, he was such a pioneer in the music industry. And I could see it with him, like, for myself, doing my own business as far as uh, the music goes as well and how much of an influence he was on, on other people and other artists and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, as far as memories go, that's, that's say she say for me. Right, right. You were too young. And, Andrew, you had a question for him, too, didn't you? Yeah, I was um, curious uh, for the when, – when you – I guess when you perform or just for your own listening, it, everybody knows, like, the temptation hits, like, uh, you know, My Girl, I Wish It Would Rain that, that your grandfather sang on. But are there any uh, deeper cuts or album cuts or or songs that he did that should have been hits when he was solo but didn't quite – you know, uh, become huge that that you personally love that you would recommend we check out, like uh, people who want to get a uh, deeper appreciation of them? Yeah, for sure. Um, you have Statue of a Man, uh, Walk Away from Love. Those are those are some of his, his biggest hit. Well, not his biggest, but some records people can um, refer to as far as his solo career goes. And I guess what makes it kind of hard is because everyone knows him for being David Ruffin of The Temptations versus being David Ruffin, the solo artist. So maybe the impact of him being solo wasn't so big because he had none of the antics to follow, like, for what he's known for. Right. But those are definitely, uh, those are definitely um, records that speak to people. It's almost like myself, kind of like how I try to be. They're genuine. It's music. It's relatable. By by many. Well, tell us about your music and the sort of music that you're performing right now, and how people can can get your music, Marquis. Okay, uh, for me, I've come a long way from when I first started. I started singing around 17, 18, so I was a late bloomer. But um, the type of music I do now is I would consider it to be, by, by way of genre, for the familiar ear, it's R&B, but um. On a deeper level, it's it's alternative R and B for me, and I say that because it's alternative to what you're used to hearing as R and B. 
And I, I, I there's still substance. There's there's, there's mass in, in my music. It's not so it's not so radio, but um, I still give you the beat behind it that allows you to make you feel like you're uh, you're still listening to the radio. But as you listen, and only when you listen, you can relate to what I'm saying on on a more uh, genuine level outside of just like, oh, I want to hear this song because it's cool. So. And so you write your own? Do you write your own songs? Yeah, I write. I write everything that you hear from me is written by me. And if it's not written by me, then it's written by my uncle, who's also like a huge influence on everything that I do. But you can hear the difference now when I write and when he when he writes. So, yeah, tell me. And so, if people want to to hear your music, where do they go? You can um, find me on SoundCloud, first name Marquise, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S-E, last name Ruffin. You can find me there. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, same thing. Yeah, that's pretty That's pretty much it. Those are the main ways of getting in touch with me. So, Well, that is great. And we appreciate so much that you've taken that inspiration from this revolutionary year in music, 1965. And you, as they say on American Idol, until we're ready to jump off a bridge, you've made it your own, but you have, <laughs> and your music is beautiful. And we're going to close the show in a few minutes with your song, Can't Be Friends, which is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Oh, and I appreciate it. Well, uh, we're we will be talking to you again. I want to have you back on the show again. But thank you for calling in today, and good luck to you. And I'm going to keep the audience posted on where you go from here. We're going to be watching your career. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I thank you for the questions and whatnot. I appreciate the love. Um, I look forward to being on again. Okay, we'll talk to you soon, Marquis. Thank you for calling. You as well. Well, was that exciting or what to have the grandson of David Ruffin on the show? And I wonder if uh, when he said his uncle, I wonder if that uncle is the son of Jimmy Ruffin, the other, uh, the brother of David Ruffin, who was a Motown guy, you know, as well. I bet it Great. was. Sweet, sweet guys. I really enjoyed meeting them. You know, we could totally do another show, uh, and maybe, and let's think about doing that, like in July on this book, because we didn't get to talk about Bob Dylan's love affair with the Beatles. He loves them in the beginning of 65, then he's mad at them and doesn't like them, calls them bubblegum, then he falls for them again. We didn't get to talk about the Stones, and there's just so many things. But I want to tell our listeners that this book is written in such a, a beautiful way. It doesn't give you topics like the Stones, Dylan, or whatever. It unfolds month by month as you did at the first of the show through winter and then into spring and then into summer, and 1965 unfolds for you, and it is a great ride. So, Andrew, where can people get a copy of the book? They can get it in a lot of, uh, you know, Barnes & Nobles, uh, or at least I'm in California. Uh, the local booksellers have it, um, but you can always get it on Amazon as well. If, if uh, the, books, the physical bookstores aren't selling it, then you can order it on Amazon. And you and I had a great time at the Fest for Beatles fans in Los Angeles. Any plans that you'll be at the Chicago Fest? Yeah, I definitely want to go because I know um, Al Sussman, another uh, writer, another Beatle writer, he's been doing his own 65 series on his uh, Facebook page. and uh, So we can all have a 65 discussion out in Chicago. It would be great. Yes, 
And I, I told Al I definitely want him to come on the show in, in June. Why don't the three of us plan to do a show together? Because we can really rock 1965. Terrific. Yeah. Whenever you want to do it, I'm I'm here. That'd be great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. And we have about three minutes left, so we're going to close out with Marquise Ruffin's song, Can't Be Friends. Listen, enjoy it. ta and shine on. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.